0: And welcome back to another episode of Much Language, Such Talk. In this episode, you'll be listening to me, Brittany, and our fabulous volunteer Zoe, who has just handed in her final assignment of her undergraduate degree in philosophy and linguistics from the University of Edinburgh. Zoe speaks French, English, and Spanish. Welcome, Zoe.
1: Hi, hello. Thank you for having me.
0: We're so excited you're able to join us for an episode, finally. And for today's episode, we are honored to be joined by Thomas Chalron. <laughs> who is the director of Languages for All in the Centre for Open Learning at the University of Edinburgh, as well as the Bilingualism Matters Program Director for Language Teaching and Learning. He has extensive experience in language teaching, training language teachers, curriculum development, and the CEFR, Common European Framework of Reference, for languages. Before joining the Centre for Open Learning, Thomas was a research associate at Morehouse House School of Education, taking part in research projects analyzing the factors of successful language learning in Scottish schools. As well, he was the Scotland-based Education Attaché for the French Embassy in the UK, the Executive Director of the Alliance Française of Washington, D.C., and the Alliance Française of Calgary, and held leadership roles in France, Spain, Chile, Kenya, Zimbabwe, and Slovakia. Welcome, Thomas. Bonjour. Bonjour. <laughs> So for today's episode, we're going to be talking about your extensive research and background in language learning and teaching, and we're really happy to have you here. So our first question, I think Zoe would like to get us started off with.
1: Yeah, we were wondering, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about yourself. How did you get interested in languages?
0: Yeah, well, it's lovely. Thank you. Thank
2: you for for having me on this chat today. It's lovely uh, to have this conversation with you. I'm not sure where it started, but I, one, one thing I know is I loved it at school. So in France, I was learning as my L2 at school, I was learning English. And then at my L3, I was learning German and I enjoyed very much my language classes. I remember we had the opportunity in uh, secondary school to have a language assistant from, I had, a, I remember one language assistant from England, from, uh, from Newcastle, For example, and I I loved going uh, for that additional hour where we could talk about culture in Britain and the music she was listening to. And I also had uh, language assistance in German and and I loved loved that. And then in secondary, uh, on top of um, English and German, I took Breton. As my fourth language, it was a bit of a headache for my school management because uh, I was in science. And so when you do science, you can do only two additional languages.
0: Oh, okay. And
2: I wanted a third additional language. And so I insisted that I needed to do Breton. And so I could do only two of the three periods a week and I had to catch up the other one. But I managed and I loved that. So, but I actually don't know where it started, but... I remember that I really enjoyed those languages. And so basically, at the end of my secondary education, I decided I wanted to become a French teacher abroad and that I wanted to travel and teach French abroad.
1: Amazing. So what, you speak Breton, English, obviously, and German and French.
2: So I've, and I've completely forgot my German, which is one of the challenges in language learning is you can pick up new languages, but you can also forget languages you've learned if you don't practice them. So I've completely forgotten my German. I continue, of course, to speak English and, and I work in English. And then I've learned Spanish. When I was posted in Chile, I didn't speak a word of Spanish.
0: Oh, really? Yeah.
2: In France, usually in your L3, you, you choose between German or Spanish.
0: Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah.
2: So I chose, I chose German. So I didn't learn Spanish. And so when, when I arrived in Chile, I was not speaking a word of Spanish. And I was setting up a new Alliance Francaise in uh, Valparaiso, Viña del Mar, and I learned uh, Spanish on the ground and I kept it.
0: That's quite impressive. So you've got language learning experience formally in different classrooms, but then also the more immersive experience of moving to Chile and not knowing any Spanish and just picking it up.
2: Yeah. And so my knowledge of Spanish is very different. I can write Spanish, but I would write Spanish as I speak. So I've never learned how to place a single accent in Spanish, which in Spanish spelling is quite important. And my grammar in Spanish is totally from my conversation skills and my need to communicate in Spanish. But I have no uh, formal learning of Spanish grammar. Now, that didn't block me from taking the Spanish exams. And I, uh, for example, took the Spanish Diploma de Español, Lengua Extranjera c1 level which is nearly top proficiency level so you you can you can transpose this in in some formal uh, writing but i've never learned it properly so my grammar is sometimes a bit broken in spanish
0: that's super interesting i guess yeah grammar is one of these things that you can pick up but if in writing in particular it's most helpful in my experience at least to just be explicitly taught so around that, then you've got all these different sort of language learning experiences. What do you think are the benefits to learning new languages?
2: That's a good question. I think there's as many benefits as there are reasons for learning a language, and it, it all depends what our needs are. Personally, I'm very practical. I need to be able to communicate, and and I need to have those interactions because. In Chile, basically, when I arrived, I had to set up this new Alliance Francaise and I, I needed to make it happen. I had to organize concerts, exhibitions, and I didn't speak a word of Spanish. So I was trying between my English and French to, to make it happen. I remember going on a radio program, trying to sell a contemporary dance uh, show that we were organizing with the French embassy. And I have I had very broken Spanish, but I needed to communicate that information that it was a great show and people needed to turn up. So, of course, if, if your reason to learn a language is to want to communicate or to travel, that's, that's one. Some other people will want to uh, start something new in their life. And they've had this in their mind that they wanted to learn a new language. Some other colleagues uh, might need to learn a language because they need to access uh, a text in another language in academia. That's common if you want to go to the source. Right. So the benefits are, are as multiple as, as there are reasons. For example, get yourself out of your comfort zone or uh, meet new people in a language class because in a language class, it's usually quite interactive. So if you're new in a place, if you go to your language school, surely you will meet people very soon and very quickly as you arrive in a new place. So culture, personal advancement, uh, travel, but also cognitive reasons. And and you know of that, I think, uh, Brittany.
0: Yes, I do. <laughs> that just for everyone listening, the first instance that Tom and I became acquainted was through research. So we'll come on to this a little bit later. Actually, actually, we can talk about it now, which is the Languages for All program at the Centre for Open Learning at the University of Edinburgh. So I conducted some research within that program. Um, so if you wanted to quickly maybe just talk a little bit about what Languages for All is.
2: Yeah. So uh, Languages for All in Edinburgh, it's, it's not always the same across the UK.
0: Oh, is it not? Oh, see, I didn't know that.
2: Yeah, it, it really, it's, it's a bit of a structure in a way. So in Edinburgh, Languages for All is lifelong learning language courses at the Centre for Open Learning. In other universities of the UK, Languages for All could also include what uh, would be university-wide language provision. Oh, okay. So... When you want to study a language at university, either you do a degree in a language and you want to be a specialist in French or Spanish or or Russian or Arabic or or any other, or you just want to take a language elective on top of your studies in law or medicine. Some of those language electives across the UK could be called languages for all. So it really depends on the history of how languages have been taught in in an institution. But in Edinburgh, it's a lifelong learning language courses at the Center for Open Learning. But now, Languages for All is an academic unit within the Center for Open Learning. And we do more than actually only uh, lifelong learning language courses. Oh. So as of next year, for example, we'll be offering an access course in languages and cultures.
0: That's quite interesting. Cool.
2: Yeah, for adult returners who want to progress to an undergrad, but who don't have the qualifications to start a language degree in undergrad.
0: Oh, okay, very nice.
2: Yeah, so that's a, a new opportunity for for students, and um, I'm quite I'm quite delighted. We're going to have nine students, and many of them want then after their their project is to progress in. Japanese or Chinese or Arabic but they need to have had some formal language learning before that and so that's going to be access languages and cultures but we also offer uh, swahili credit courses within the university for undergrad and postgrad students and that's under languages for all for historic reasons uh, swahili being a language that is not offered by the school of Literature's languages and cultures this is at the center for open learning so Languages for All is a concept, but it's also a a name or a unit uh, at the Center for Open Learning.
0: Mm -hmm. I think something that's come across in your answer to that as well is the diversity of languages that are on offer within this concept in the Center for Open Learning. Could you speak maybe a little bit more about the range of classes and and the types of languages that you have available?
2: Yeah, we have at the moment 20 languages. We offer 20 languages. I'm going to try this. That's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Let's see uh, if I can do this. So it's Arabic, British Sign Language, Czech, Danish, Dutch, Finnish, French, German, Gaelic, Italian, Japanese, modern Greek, Norwegian, Polish, Portuguese, Russian, Spanish, Swahili, Swedish, Turkish. Do you have 20, Zoe?
1: Almost,
0: 19. <laughs> 19. Oh, no, we're just one away. Oh, that was so impressive, though, as well, because it was in alphabetical order. <laughs> I missed
2: one. I missed one. I'm sorry for the language I missed.
1: Maybe, maybe, maybe I miscounted.
2: No, it must be me. I probably forgot one, one language in that list. So we have
1: quite a few
0: languages, though, nonetheless. Yes.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, really a, a rich uh, variety here of, of languages. And we offer every year a complete beginner's course in every of those languages. And then in some languages, we're able to uh, go to high proficiency level, uh, French, German, Spanish, Italian. We, we can go up to a C2 level of the CFR, so the highest proficiency level. But in some other languages, uh, maybe we, we can only uh, end at the end of elementary level, which would allow you to travel in a country where that language is spoken or to have an interaction with someone who speaks uh, that language on a, on a very practical uh, subject. So we can offer a minimum program in each of those 20 languages. And then for some, we can push you a bit further in your proficiency uh, level.
0: And how has, in light of this sort of elephant in the room we're meeting online for right now, how have the classes transitioned in light of COVID, moving online, all that sort of stuff?
2: Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite interesting. And it's been, uh, it's been interesting for all of us in this sector, In Edinburgh, but also my colleagues across across the UK in the language centers, it's been quite positive. And and students are telling us on their feedback that they are happily surprised that they thought it would be not so good and that they really enjoyed it. In terms of teaching, it's been quite good, interesting. Some of the good silver lining there is high participation, high engagement. It seems to be that the Risk taking is higher in communications, is in speaking. So that has been quite positive. You would see typically in language classroom that students uh, tend to sit always at the same space next to the same friend. And with online teaching, for example, with with the random breakout rooms, we've had to, to speak with different students and that has worked well. So there's been a number of Good things happening with online uh, teaching and learning, students discovering new aspects of language before their class, so the famous flipping. We've always talked about it, but we've not always tried it. And so we, we had to try it. And that was another way to introduce new concepts before the classroom. And that worked. Colleagues were worrying about this. Uh, how, do I, how do I manage my program with, with a limited contact time on, on, on the screen? Because it's a bit slower. Not the learning process, but the the time we have online, because, of course, I have to wait for you to have finished to talk before I can talk. And so there's everything a bit slower there. I need to set up my breakout room then to bring you back. And so there's some fluidity that is gone. But actually, uh, we've noticed that students engage more in their autonomous learning before the class, after the class. And that participation in the class is um, more than in the classroom. Sometimes where you may, I don't know, rely on uh, some colleagues to to speak and then you could maybe be a bit more quiet. And here with those breakout rooms, for example, on Zoom, well, you're invited to to speak more often and that has been good. Other uh, good feedback is on more writing, more direct, immediate writing on the chat.
0: Oh, right. Okay.
2: Yeah. Writing is one of those elements that is difficult in a language class for adults because when you take your two hours course in the evening, you want communication in the classroom. You want something dynamic. And so writing is something that you do on your own. And in terms of energy in the class, it's, it's a bit of a killer.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so with online learning and the interactions around the chat, you've seen a lot of writing.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Some of the challenges have been the board because so in languages where the alphabet uh, or the script is different, of course, the first courses you learn, you learn the new alphabet or you learn the new script. And so some teachers have had to invent other ways of introducing the alphabet in Japanese or in Arabic, for example. And so that's the use of padlets, for example, have been very useful to introduce those, those new scripts.
0: What is, what is a padlet?
2: These are the digital tools we use uh, to accompany the classroom, where where students can write and share a bit of a board in a way.
0: Oh, really? oh, okay, so more like like an additional tool, not something that's like part of Zoom.
2: Yeah, yeah, because in your traditional vision of your language class, you may have your board somewhere there at the back of your of your tutor. The the tutor of the language class is not someone who's who's standing at the board and who's writing on the board. That's not what happens in a language classroom usually, but. There are those moments where some of your students are asking you to write down something because they want to write it down on their notebook because they want to memorize it that way. And in the case of a modern Greek, Russian, or or Arabic, or or Japanese, you also have to to learn the new alphabet or the new script. And so that board, that visual element is quite important there. Definitely. And on Zoom, that has been a bit lost. Like, where are we with this? Because I can't just write like this. And so we've had to to find new ways, but it works. So positive. And then the big, 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 big positive is accessibility. People who are too far to take a language class or who had to travel or were not able to join a language class in the evening after they work could do it. So that's the big one.
0: Yeah, that's really, really nice. The accessibility element, especially not unironically the, the title is languages for all and in being online in some ways genuinely for all now as in anyone can can join and it in my experience when I've looked for language classes it's it's quite difficult actually to find such a diversity of languages on offer so to have that online as well must be a really big really big positive I know this might be a question you don't want to answer or think about but do you think you'll move things online in moving forward as well or keep them online I guess?
2: Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, this question of accessibility is really the big main question in in language learning. I mean, when you're looking at the challenges, the question is that language learning has not been accessible uh, or it's not been accessible enough uh, for people. And so I think this is quite essential. And that's a turning point for us that eventually, wherever you live, you can take your language class. That will make a huge difference. So when we think about the future programs, we need to think about this. And that's a reflection we we are having with with my colleagues, which is are we looking at something that is totally online? Are we looking at a model where we have some on campus experience uh, because the social dimension is quite strong in lifelong learning uh, language courses, though we were able to build some social dimension around the online classroom though so my Intuition is that a mixed model where some on-campus experience once in a while and some online learning might be the best option, but I'm not 100% sure. So we still need to think about this, but certainly we would keep some of this. And certainly the autonomous learning element of these new online courses, we need to keep them because uh, students have enjoyed that. So, for example, in your language class, usually you have some listening comprehension activity. So you're listening to a document and then you have some questions to answer. Now, if students, we've, we've had teachers trying to propose this to their students uh, as, as something they would do autonomously before the class. That has worked well and students have enjoyed them because some of them may have wanted to listen it, I don't know, a fourth time or a fifth time or, or to pause or to play or, or to stop. And that's something we cannot always do in the classroom with a group of 12 or 14 students. So some of that dimension will have to be uh, kept in in our future programs.
0: Yeah, definitely. That sounds like, I think, a very good middle ground, taking the positives of a negative situation and keeping that moving forward.
1: You talked a little bit about second language learning. So you're currently running a project on the 1 plus 2 approach here in Scotland. Can you tell us a little bit about this, about your project? and maybe what you hope to achieve with
2: it. Yeah, maybe I can start a bit with the 1 plus 2 here and how I, uh, I joined this project. So not sure if, if auditors, uh, some of our auditors will be familiar with the 1 plus 2 uh, policy in Scotland, but in few, a few words, Scotland has implemented a new language policy for their primary and secondary education, whereby every learner in Scotland is entitled to learn two languages an L2 from P1, which is the first year of, of primary education, to S3, which is the third year of secondary, and then an L3 from P5 to S3. So that new policy came into place in 2012 or 2013, and it needs to be implemented by 2021. So in September... Or in August, when students in Scotland go back to school, they are entitled to those two additional languages. And that's quite new in Scotland because until now, students were learning only during the last two years of their primary and the first two years of their secondary. So now they start learning a language much earlier from the first year of of primary school and one more year in secondary, hopefully, as the things are being rolled out maybe when they will look at further entitlement in the secondary because I think it's it's not such a good idea to stop learning a, a language on your third year of secondary and then have three years where that's not an obligation at all. But it's, it's a different conversation. So that's where they are in Scotland at the moment. And when I joined the French Institute as the education attache, my role was of course to support the French element. So support teachers across Scotland to introduce French as an L2 in primary one. And this project specifically is a result of a collaboration between Moray House School of Education, Professor Dokoyle and Dr. Fiona Hanlon with colleagues who are responsible in each council of the region to implement the 1 plus 2 policy. So in East Lothian, Mid Lothian, the borders Fife and Edinburgh, there is In each of those council, one person responsible for the implementation of the one plus two policy, and their role is to support staff in making this happen.
1: Have there been any challenges or obstacles in implementing the one plus two program?
2: The reality is that colleagues in the primary school had to learn how to learn a language and learn how to teach a language. And on their own and with the support of those colleagues from, from their councils, because it's an entitlement for the learners, but it's the responsibility of each professional, each teacher to, to get trained and, and, and to know how to teach uh, and introduce those languages. So quite, quite a challenge.
0: Yes. <laughs> wow. Yes. <laughs>
2: yes. Quite a challenge. Uh, when, when all of this st- started, of course, there was a number of colleagues in in the primary sector, we're saying, well, I'm I'm not comfortable at all. I don't speak a word of a a language. My last formal language learning was in my secondary education years ago. And I feel totally rusty or I actually have learned German and now I'm I'm, I'm being asked to teach French. So the beginning of the one plus two was, of course, very challenging, but progressively colleagues have accessed some trainings and they've seen what other colleagues can, can offer. And so bit by bit, they've tried and they've tasted the water and, and they start to introduce the language in their class. And so this project specifically started three years ago, where after a few years of one plus two, where basically the councils were proposing a lot of trainings to colleagues in schools, there was a need to, to see where we were. So what's going on on the ground? What are the needs? Is language now a reality? What's being offered? And what's the next step? And how can we best support our colleagues for for the next step? So the first element of it was a research piece where we looked at the literature, looked at what are the ingredients for success in in education, in in language learning. And then we went to see some language classes in, in various schools of the region and And we interviewed uh, learners and teachers and head teachers to see how they defined successful language learning. And so with this, we looked at what was working well and we looked at what were the identified challenges and where we could possibly support colleagues. And from there, we gathered other colleagues, other primary and secondary teachers, looking at those challenges and uh, looking at how best we could support them with, with those challenges. And we are in the final phase of creating a self-evaluation tool which will help them to evaluate either as a professional or as a school or as a team their language provision and what is their next step in uh, rolling out uh, the 1 plus 2 in their school for a positive experience for students and, and a successful language learning.
1: With all of this having been done, what are your next steps and when are you expecting to have this tool ready?
2: It's been nearly three years. We hope to have the tool ready at the end of June. We are, at the moment, it's my colleague Jonal Hanlon and my colleague Anne Robertson, who's the One 2 officer for the Borders, East Lothian and Mid Lothian, who are writing the, the tool at the moment and working with the digital team of the college to create a website where teachers will find resources, but will also evaluate themselves on success criteria. And so we're looking forward to launch this in, in the next few months, weeks or months, somewhere there, by the end of the school year.
0: Very soon, yeah.
2: So we're looking forward to this because it's been, it's been a bit long in the making. Because of COVID, we had to pause on on our initial plans and we had to redesign a bit how we could create this tool with colleagues. But at the end, there should be something out there soon. and feedback from colleagues up to now. We've we've presented on a number of occasions already the, the progress we've made, and it's been excellent feedback from colleagues who, who want to pause and have a bit of a thinking to plan their next step. So some of the challenges they're facing, for example, is to make sure that language learning is a continuous activity from P1 to S3. And how do we make sure that there are no interruptions there in this learning. For example, in in a year where the teacher would not feel comfortable teaching this language and would be equipped with another language, how do you do this? Other challenges is, for example, how do you introduce another additional language in P5? And so as a primary practitioner, you're, you're able to introduce French, but then in P5, you have to introduce Spanish. So would that be you or would that be a team within your school or would you have other arrangements? There's reflection on how you embed language learning in the primary curriculum, but also in the life of the primary school. So many, many of those we've discussed with colleagues and we've tried to, to find ways to invite them to think about this and to define how they want to progress on those challenges with their colleagues and, and their learners in their schools. So, yeah, quite, quite interesting stuff coming out soon.
1: Awesome. It's good to hear older. Well, good. Interesting to hear all the complexities that go into making such programs. So here we were dealing with children. Languages for All is mostly targeted towards adults, right? Yeah. So you're working with children, you're working with adults, sometimes older adults as well. Do you have any group, age group that you prefer working with or prefer, or you find more fun working with perhaps?
2: No, I don't think so. Personally, as as a French teacher, I've worked with all ages. I've worked with very young ones. I've worked with adolescents. I've worked with young adults and then with lifelong learners and mature students. And I don't have a preference. All learners are, are quite interesting. I don't think there is, from my point of view, but I think Brittany might want to come on this later. I don't think, I'm not sure that learning styles are connected to the age. I think it's more of how do you learn and what is your relation to a a language classroom. So for example, you have some students who would very much like to have a direct interaction with their teacher and would not value as much the interaction with their fellow learners. It depends from your culture and the type of education you've, you've had and the type of formal schooling you've had and how you value your colleagues in the class. It's also depending on your representations. So for example, if you think that only the teacher has is able to explain or their pronunciation would be the only correct one, then in that case, you would be thinking that you want to have a direct interaction with your teacher. There are some, some people think, for example, that an elderly audience would rather fall on that pattern. I don't think I would agree with that. It all really depends on your representations. I'm sure you can find systems where collaborations between mature students have been nurtured in such a way that they would collaboratively learn the language amongst themselves and would not necessarily need so much attention from the one tutor in the classroom. So I'm not sure. Brittany, what do you think of this? Because you've you've studied that at, at Languages for All.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's It's a really interesting question, this idea of if the preferences around learning are age-related or experience-related. And I think something that's come up a lot from the work that we've done with Languages for All with your teachers as well as your students is exactly that, that it's not necessarily, oh, I'm suddenly 50, so I will only like to learn in this way. And if you are, you know, in your 30s, then you must learn in that way. It's not really the age boundary, but it's more about the background experience and what people are wanting to get out of the class. So what we sort of been talking about earlier about motivation or why you might want to learn a language, that's going to obviously dictate then the style of learning you might want to go about or what things you want to focus on. So if you're looking specifically for verbal communication, writing isn't going to be very interesting. That's not surprising. Or say if you are really wanting to learn a language for say, reading a text in the original language in which it was written, the grammar is going to be very important for you there because that's going to be in the written modality. So you want to, to follow that. So a lot of the, the findings we found is very similar to that, but like supporting what you've experienced as well Is it's not necessarily age dictating the style that people are going to prefer in learning, but more so their experience previously, their background, and then also what their motivation is for being there in the first instance. But I think there is definitely a misconception of the sort of traditional teacher at the whiteboard pointing to <laughs> different letters on the board and saying, this is how you, how you pronounce this one versus this one versus that one.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's quite interesting. All of those representations. So for example, the type of language learning we've had at school. And so our relation to grammar or our relation to translation. But also our attitude as 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 a learner in a classroom: Do we want to speak all the time, or are we more, um, for example, do you, do you raise the, your hand all the time because you're in in a hurry to because you have the answer and you want to give the answer, or things like this? And so, yeah, you would see this in in your language class uh, at any age, I think.
0: Yeah, and there's individual differences as well that is quite important. Yeah, it's not maybe age driving that but personality differences as well as anytime you have a group of people there's going to be a social element there and some people get along better than others etc so there's there's all of that to navigate it's not as easy as just having like you know a little avatar that's this age and therefore they behave a certain way
1: yeah I was wondering whether to what extent would you say the educational framework ties into that in the sense that you know, learning a language at school from my experience was very much ticking boxes in kind of a boring way, learning tenses, learning, you know, the grammar. And I actually did a course in Spanish at the Languages for All, not to just toot your, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, my experience was very different. It was very, very much more thematic based. And of course, we would do grammar within that, but it wasn't just today we're going to do. So yeah, I was wondering whether, you know, In the end, the educational framework kind of shapes what your attitude is to language learning.
2: Of course. And we've all, I mean, it's quite unfortunate that many of us, yeah, I mean, I I, I would think that many, I'm not sure, Brittany, what was your experience of language learning, but many think it was, don't necessarily have great memories of what they did at school or don't always think that it was useful.
0: Yeah, I, I think in my case, I'm quite lucky, actually, because I took French in high school and in my high school, there were two on offer, French or Spanish. Spanish was the the more popular one. So I had the same teacher for all four years who was absolutely incredible. Mademoiselle Newman, if you're listening, you are still <laughs> one of the best teachers. Um, and she made it quite fun. And because I was with her the whole time, I was actually with the similar group of students as well. So we sort of all went through that journey together and that cohesive element I think really helped but also she made grammar so fun which sounds (laughs) like an oxymoron maybe for some people but it was so fun and we would have like flip books for example and then we would spend the time making them in class learning what you know the different shapes are called in French or what the colors are what the utensils were using scissors etc and then produce the thing to learn from later so I think my experience maybe is not as representative but I've definitely heard from my own research that it can be very unpleasant, the learning experience. Luckily, though, mine was great.
2: <laughs> Things have changed a lot now, and, and the way we teach languages has, has changed. And this one plus two policy in Scotland is is about this, which is something that is more, much more motivating, much more adapted to students' ways of, of learning to our curriculum today. But it's true that, I mean, the, the traditional way of learning the language was very... Um, boring in a way where, where you were learning the grammar and the translation and it's still i mean there's still a number of students who like this and who would want this as and would uh, think that this is the best way to learn a language so that's that's not to be discarded uh, like this but yeah i think the demand today and the need uh, of course is to be proficient i mean we need we need language programs that allow you to have a communication i mean that's what i think to have a communication in in the language and so Of course, language pedagogy has changed. Our curricula have changed a lot. The Common European Framework of Reference for Languages, but not only all research there, as if there's a lot of development, there's been a lot of development. And so, of course, the experience you had, Zoe, in in secondary education is different from what is being offered today. I think, I don't know, in France, how they teach English today, but I I would imagine it would be be quite different today because it was very much... Text-based in our age, where we were still reading a lot, we were reading documents about English-speaking countries, but very, very based on the written materials, and the speaking was less present in the classroom. And and we can see now that a number of countries in their in the way they want to teach, but also assess languages, are valuing speaking much more than was the case uh, in the past. It also comes from that. When you have thirty-five students in front of you speaking, is, is more challenging to organize.
0: That's true.
1: Yeah. yeah. So you're the Bilingualism Matters program director for language teaching and learning, and have extensive experience training language teachers and creating curriculum. From what we've said, and maybe you can add some more as well. What do you think are key factors in entering successful language learning and language in general? You know.
2: Yeah, I think we we've said a number of the. Of the factors there, um, they are the factors around how you organize this learning and how accessible it is. And that's key because for adults, you need to find a space for that language learning. So you need to design courses which fit around other activities. In the universities, it's also a challenge when when you think about language electives that come on top of your degree, because if you have a heavy schedule already and that You want, on top of your studies in law or medicine, continue to learn French or Spanish or German. There are a number of students who have kept a language until the end of secondary, who decide not to do a degree in a language, who study another subject for their degree at the university, but who could continue where they stopped. And actually that would be advisable because as, as we said, if you don't practice, you may lose your language. So if you want to continue learning whilst you're doing medicine and you have a heavy schedule, then you need, you need a program that is designed around you and that you're able to take it. And so accessibility and how you design this learning is, is quite key. And, and as we've said, the online has been positive and we need to continue progressing into that direction and making sure language learning is accessible. Because I think that's one of the major challenges in the UK regarding language learning. You hear all the time that we're not good at language learning in the UK. And I don't think that Brits are better or worse in language learning. It's only that they've not always had good experience or they are they have a complex of inferiority, but also language learning has not always been available, basically. And so they've made the wrong choice, they've stopped it very early in secondary, they have not picked it up again, and then it's too hard, or I have to start all over, or it's too heavy in terms of time commitment, and so I won't do this. So, I mean, a big, 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 enormous factor in successful language learning is how do you design this learning to be fitting with, with your other commitments in life, and for adults, it's essential. So, that's one. Uh, second one is, of course, your curriculum and, and what you teach. Yeah. We've, we've talked about this, Zoe, and um, about your, your experience in, at school. I mean, if this is so remote from your interests, your personal interests, or your objective, if this is something that you take only to be successful in an exam, but actually that is disconnected to your interest in that language, then, of course, that's not going to be very successful uh, an experience and so of course the curriculum itself needs to be looked at how relevant it is how connected to you that's quite an essential one and then of course keeping the motivation and so this motivation will come as you progress and it will come with your progression the fact that you're able to do more and more and more in that language you're learning will help you to continue now if you have unreasonable expectations that will discourage you. So. Yeah, And those unreasonable expectations don't come from, they come because we've not explained you properly. We've not explained well enough what it takes to learn a language. So that's our responsibility to explain, okay, at the end of this one-year course, you'll be able to do this. And mm-hmm. to reach the objectives that you want, you've been telling me you want to reach, which is, for example, being autonomous in the language. With my Languages for All program at the moment, it's going to take you five years. And it's fine. You'll reach that but don't burn the steps because otherwise you're going to be discouraged. And so there's a lot there to be said about measuring success, planning the next step, evaluating what I've learned, and being aligned with students' expectations and and making sure that students know where they are with their learning and what's their next steps in their learning. It takes some time. You won't be bilingual after one course. (laughs) And it needs to be clear from day one. Because if not, it's going to be disappointing. And and of course, an adult who's made the effort to enroll in a language class, take the risk to enroll in a language class where, it, I mean, in beginner's courses, language class, you feel awkward. You have to, what you're able to say is so limited and you have to pronounce those sounds and you feel stupid in some occasions. So you've done all of that work. If then you're disappointed because you've not achieved what you wanted to achieve, then It's quite terrible. So here, of course, uh, success is is about motivation. And to keep this motivation is, of course, measuring success, planning the next step, but also, of course, learning the language that I want to learn. And you want this experience, of course, to be fun, to be enriching, and you want to be learning useful stuff in the language, of course. So lists of vocabularies, for example, maybe not. (laughs) translation a systematic translation maybe not that's a different I mean some people need to do that and they have a motivation to learn that and they have needs to do this but in your lifelong learning language class that's not typically what people need and want and so then that's not something we should propose otherwise we will be deterring students from from learning that language
0: yeah yeah I think on that note That's a really, really thought-provoking spot where we can end the episode. We do have more questions, but we do not have the time. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today while we spoke about language teaching and language learning with Thomas Sharon. We hope you enjoyed it and learned some cool things or at least some thought-provoking information. I know I certainly did. A special thanks to Thomas for his time and for sharing his expertise with us. If you're interested in learning more about him and his work, there'll be a link to his university webpage in the episode description to the Languages for All classes at the Center for Open Learning should you be interested in maybe taking a class. Tune in next time to keep learning about how languages shape us and the environment around us. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and... Hasta luego. Gracias.
1: A bientôt. Ciao.